Welcome back to the Bravo Dog Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Erdman. I'm a certified dog trainer and behavior consultant. I own a bravodog.ca. And today we're talking to Jenny Efimova from Dog Minded in Boston. We're talking about the concept of control with our pet dogs. So tune in. I hope you enjoy it and learn a few things along the way. Before we get started, I wanted to share with everyone out there who is thinking about becoming a dog trainer or is already working as a dog trainer that the mentorshipcollective.com, our six-week clarity course, the doors are closing this Friday. So if you'd like to get in on a fantastic course all about personal and professional development and help you overcome your business challenges, join us before the doors close. That's www.thementorshipcollective.com. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm so excited. We've got Jenny Efimova from Dog Minded Boston. Uh, I've had several messages since I announced that we were doing this today. So uh, I am really excited. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself, Jenny? Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Um, so I'm Jenny and I am the owner of Dog Minded. I do training for puppies and adult dogs in the Boston area. And I mainly provide in-person coaching and then virtual training services. Nice. So what, tell me a bit about your background prior to working with animals. Sure. So before I came to dog training, I did work with survivors of domestic and sexual violence for over a decade. Um, And most of my work was centered on direct services. So I worked directly by helping survivors access services and then also doing advocacy, education, outreach, and prevention, which (laughs) just a fancy (laughs) way of saying, you know, educating people about the dynamics of intimate partner violence, because it's such a, you know, misunderstood issue, lots of stigma around that issue um, and doing prevention work, which is really helping young people and teens um, develop healthier relationships. So lots of kind of dynamics around abuse, which when we look at what intimate partner violence is or any abusive relationship is, can be defined as, you know, one person trying to gain and maintain power and control over another. Um, So a lot of it has to do with, you know, power and control dynamics and unequal dynamics in relationships. Mm -hmm. Wow. Which is exactly going to relate to what we're talking about today. The whole concept of control when working with our animals, um, which is, which is a big thing. Um, so it must really help you. Your background must really, really help you when you're working with clients. Um, yes. So, you know, interestingly when, you know, I had been doing that work for, a you know, larger part of my life professionally, and then I adopted my dog Larkin and, you know, we hired a trainer, And, you know, I started to like read things online and getting advice from, you know, friends and family. And for a while, as we were kind of trying to work through some things with him, you know, I really had this interesting dichotomy where I was kind of, I wasn't really seeing that a lot of the traditional 
sort of training that we were trying to implement or implementing and we're being given advice about very much parallel those dynamics, um, you know, about power and control. And I really, it wasn't until I kind of had this moment of um, realizing that the very things that I had been working on and trying to educate folks about, I was also kind of perpetuating with my own dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like I was practicing one set of values in one area of my life and then a whole other set of values in with, with my dog, who I loved very much and cared very much about and who was a huge and a very important part of my life. Um, And so that was a big kind of a light bulb moment around, you know, what are the values that we are practicing in dog training? And is that really what we want to be doing? Um, So the the, the power and control piece, I think, is really um, is huge in terms of what um, traditional dog training really is all about. And also just this, the parallels that we, the parallels in terms of our relationships um, with humans and mm-hmm. also um, how we relate to dogs. And this isn't isolated to um, balanced training methods or aversive training methods. It's very much present in the positive reinforcement community as well. Um, Is, yeah. Have you, have you witnessed that? Is that, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that, um, you know, for me, positive reinforcement based training isn't just about the practice of it, like how are we teaching something or what tools are we using, but really it's about the philosophy behind it. And I think that because so much of traditional dog training, the parameters of the kind of the the mindset of traditional dog training is about obedience um, and having control and, you know, getting the dog to do the thing we want the dog to do and not doing the thing we don't want the dog to do that, um, even when we're practicing positive reinforcement-based training, we can still perpetuate those same um, ways where if the goal is to have control, um, we could still be exerting that control just by a different, through different means, you know? So what I, what I see sometimes is, and I've fallen into that trap too, is that we're always trying to, I feel like, prove that we can get you know, the same results using positive reinforcement training. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the conversation is kind of, you know, I can get the same behavior using a cookie that, you know, somebody else can get using XYZ caller, I think that's not necessarily the conversation we should be having because it's about so much more than just, um, you know, the end result. It's really about how do we see the dog in front of us mm-hmm. um, and what kind of, you know, um, choices and control and agency do we feel that dog is entitled to? Um, so I think the way that we, if the goal is still to kind of eliminate behavior or um, get the dog to do what we want and we're simply using a different, you know, method to do it, I don't know that, I don't know that that's really what mm. we should be aiming for. So in your opinion, shifting the, the goal from, you know, getting the dog to do what we want and eliminating behaviors we deem unacceptable or we don't like, should we be focusing more on the, the core well-being of the animal 
so that <laughs> we don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just for those out there listening, you know, tell us the advantage of us focusing on that instead. Well, you know, just to, to your point there, um, I read a quote that was attributed to Kay Lawrence a couple of years ago, um, where she says that we, you know, trainers should be careful about overlaying clicker training principles on top of a traditional mindset. Mm. And I think what she's talking about here, you know, she's saying clicker training, but you know, it's positive reinforcement based training, um, versus just training with a clicker. Um, you know, that the, if the traditional mindset is to, is behavior reduction, right. Or, you know, compliance that we have to be careful that just because we're using a different method doesn't mean that we're still not, we're still kind of reducing the animal's choices. Right. Um, and so it, the process matters and it matters how that animal is feeling. Hopefully we can ascertain that by other means <laughs> we can, you know, get in their head, but um, their welfare matters, their, the, the, how much control they have matters. All of those things matter. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it's not just what we're getting um, as an end result for, from as, you know, behavioral outcome. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really tough because as a society, we are, we're looking at, you know, when we see things we don't like, we want to stop it. We don't look at the, the deeper, um, the deeper issues with organisms. We just want these things to stop and quickly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's, you know, control is kind of a trap for all of us because it's so normalized and I think celebrated. I think we kind of have a very punishment, um, based culture and, you know, coercion is part of our, um, the fabric of our society. It's in our families, it's in our education systems, it's in our workplaces. Um, and so compulsion is often, you know, celebrated, having power over others is celebrated. So it's very normalized and it's, it's kind of our default sometimes. Yeah, for sure. So, so if we're looking at trying to empower our, uh, our dogs, which I think is something that might scare people when we say that, (laughs) what do you think that looks like? What, what, what would we, if we're empowering our, our dogs, what are some things that we can, um, some control that we can give back to them that then Mm -hmm. creates a a healthier dynamic? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think the reason when people hear empower, um, for some reason we go to the other end and we think that means that, you know, <laughs> the, the dog's wild and running amok, which is, is always interesting to me because our, we have such a profound power imbalance in our relationships with our dogs anyway. Like we already have so much control um, that it seems like trying to give them a little bit more control wouldn't be such a bad thing (laughs) because I mean, we control every part of their lives. Yeah. Um, And so I I think for me, I I look at empowerment as, you know, an animal who knows how to use their behavior to meet their needs, um, who sees behavior as an opportunity, you know, not a risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of the flip side of what we see a lot with dogs that kind of have a steady diet of punishment where it just has such a global impact on their behavior, where they just do less of things and they tend to think behaving is not safe and they're kind of in a state of avoidance all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the opposite of that would be 
empowering dogs to see their behavior as, you know, having a variety of skills um, that they have to be able to meet their needs, to be able to get things they want, to be able to avoid things they don't want, which I think is really important as well. Um, and so there are lots of ways we can give that to them um, by giving them more choices, by using, uh, you know, things that motivate them to train by, by, you know, allowing their behavior, um, their voluntary behavior um, to get good things. Um, so I think empowering a dog doesn't mean the dog's kind of, you know, doing whatever they want. It's just a dog that knows and has lots of skills and knows how to use their behavior um, to get what they want in a way that also works for us. So give us some examples, some actual behaviors that you would, you would say, okay, this is, um, this is acceptable, or this would be a, a good thing that we could teach a dog, reinforce them for it, and it, it empowers them. Um, well, I think one is we can certainly, you know, I'll give them choices to avoid things that they find aversive. Mm -hmm. um, so I think when we talk about like handling um, and, you know, veterinary procedures, things like that, um, being able to help them cooperate in those things, help them um, opt in and out of training, I think is really great. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, I think, day-to-day -day skills, um, I don't know, I, I, I give this example a lot because um, I share food with my dog. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I'm having dinner, if I'm eating, or if I have food with me um, and my dog wants something, um, he'll just go and hang out in a spot near me um, and then I'll share it with him. Um, yeah. So he knows exactly what to do. He doesn't have to, you know, um, you know do things that we might find um, undesirable, like barking or pawing or things like that. So I think it's just um, giving the dog lots of skills that they can use in a variety of settings um, mm -hmm. to get what they want to get reinforcement. Which is very different than teaching a dog that they only get access to things if they provide behavior. Yes. Right. Which is that uh, nothing in life is free sort of work to earn mentality. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because that to me is the ultimate power, power struggle or not power struggle because the dog really doesn't get much choice other than to offer behaviors to access things, right. Um, that we've deemed that they need to, to do. Um, yeah, I think, you know, kind of a nothing in life is free protocol is also a little bit arbitrary, like having to do something for everything doesn't seem like there's a lot of, you know, point to it other than just, you know, make the dog earn everything. Um, and I, I think what's, what's, what's lovely to see is a dog that makes choices, um, rather than is just constantly asked to do things, um, mm -hmm. for no other reason that they just have to earn it. Yeah. Well, I think a common thing that I hear is that people want their dog to look to them before mm. things, right. So before they just make choices, they want the dog to sort of basically ask permission. I hear that. That's sort of a common 
thread. Um, I'm not sure where that really, really comes from, but I think that, you know, you're going to have that if you have a connection with your dog, they're going to interact with you in a way that would achieve the same thing, I would think. Yeah. And I, I, I have heard that as well. And I think it's, um, you know, I think a lot of what we kind of do in training is make a lot of assumptions about what the dog needs or what the dog is thinking or what the dog is feeling. So it kind of sounds on the surface, it sounds, makes sense that, you know, you want your dog the dog will look to you or will know you're in control, quote unquote. Um, but I'm not sure that that's actually what's affecting behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. So what about impulse control? I mean, this is the biggest sort of um, concept that is I hear and we as I think, I don't know if it's just, you know, force free trainers or um, trainers in general is that impulse control is like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've definitely shifted my thinking about impulse control recently. Um, thanks to, you know, learning from Sarah Owings, who has done quite a bit of, um, education on this. And, um, and I think it's also kind of moving away from this idea that, um, looking at behavior in terms of constructs, right? Like what is impulse control? Can we really define it? Do we really understand what's going on in the dog's mind um, you know, are they really controlling their impulses versus are they simply behaving based on their history, mm -hmm. um, their learning history. But I think a lot of times when people talk about impulse control, um, it kind of goes alongside with saying, you know, the dog needs to be patient or the dog needs to know that they have to wait for X, Y, Z. So there's just a lot of that kind of what the dog has to do. Um, versus what are we really, what is the behavior that we're really looking at? Um, and I think with impulse control, it also just boils down to just reducing behavior, you know, yeah. um, yeah. and also some kind of, again, arbitrary things around, you know, your dog has to sit there for 30 seconds while you put the food bowl down, um, which, you know, I don't really do. <laughs> I don't really make my dog do anything. He just stands there and I put his food down. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's good enough for me, you know, I mean, but um, again, I think it's just sort of these arbitrary rules that we set um, that make us feel more in control. I think kind of going back to that piece yeah, of control. I, I mean, and if I think back to, to years ago when, when I, thought that teaching impulse control in certain scenarios would then bleed into the rest yes. of the dog's life. Mm. Right. Yes. So, okay, well, if I teach them patience, yes. this, then I can yes. generalize it around that. And then we've got a better behaved dog. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So there's lots of that, that think exactly. So if your dog can sit and wait for their food bowl to come down until you release them, that that's somehow going to help them in mm. other areas of their life. Yes. Right. So are we teaching them coping skills? That's how I had right. sort of thought about the whole concept. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Mm -hmm. Well, we learn, we evolve. Yeah. Right? Thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. But I yeah. think it is, it is such a big teaching impulse control. This is, you know, and teaching calmness. I mean, that's mm. another, it's probably one of my bigger annoyances <clears throat> lately amongst mm -hmm. a, a large list 
um, is, you know, what, again, what is that construct? What is calmness? What is, you know, is that, is that the emotional, is that the emotion of the animal or is that a physical behavior that we're observing that is just the absence of, of any behavior? Yes. Um, and I think, I think a lot of times when that gets kind of thrown about, it is about, it's the latter. I think it's about reducing yeah. behavior. Um, it is about, you know, having the dog do less of things. Um, yeah. And we do sort of these mental gymnastics a lot around explaining what's going on. Um, so saying, oh, the dog is calm. The dog knows that, you know, again, we're in control or the dog is relaxed when what we're really seeing is just kind of a general behavior suppression, um, which is pretty sad, you know, because we have a living sentient being in front of us. And I'm not sure that reducing behavior across the board is really should be the goal. Yeah. So, so what, about, what are your thoughts about anthropomorphism then? I know this is going off a little bit, but <laughs> here's the reason why I'm asking you this is because I am off. We're talking about control. We're talking about the fact that animals have, at least our, our dogs, let's talk, we'll talk about them, is mm -hmm. that they have very little control in their lives, which yeah. if you compare that to a human, how much anxiety, stress, and behavior problems that causes. Would it, would, do you think that there's a correlation there with our, with our pet dogs and, and the behavior problems that we see with them? Do you think that that is a result of, of this control? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I, I can't say I'm extremely well-versed in this literature, but I have been, you know, working on a project around this and kind of reading some of the literature around, you know, control and, um, you know, it is kind of seems to be a general consensus that control is a, an, an essential to the well-being of, you know, animals, human and non-human animals. And so lack of control is certainly problematic, right? Um, so we know, obviously, through research on learned helplessness that, you know, inability to escape aversive stimuli will result in learned helplessness, which is, you know, essentially learning that your behavior is ineffective. And having control is about being able to use your behavior effectively to, you know, get what you want and avoid what you don't and being able to control your environment. So certainly not having that um, mm -hmm. or having that limited would be pretty detrimental. Um, to your welfare, because it's such an essential piece. And I absolutely think that this is, um, this applies to dogs, unequivocally, it applies to dogs. And so and we see that I think we see that too, in our experience, the dogs that kind of have been taught that um, their behavior doesn't matter, and they're not going to, you know, their, their functional behavior has been suppressed and reduced. Um, mm -hmm. the, there's just that they're, um, there's health implications, there's increased stress. I mean, there's lots of things that are really problematic. Yeah. OCD. I mean, it makes sense. If you're, if you don't have a way to control your world, you will find something, one thing maybe that you can control. And for dogs, maybe that's compulsive looking, you know, I don't know, you know, again, like, I don't know the data related to this, mm -hmm. but I can imagine that, um, some dogs with OCD, the ones aside from the genetic 
um, components that it might be related to something like this. That could very, I mean, that could very well be. I mean, I, I just can't think of anything more damaging than, you know, not being able to um, avoid an aversive stimulus. And I think that that's kind of the most damaging thing around aversive based training. Um, and that I think people don't necessarily connect all the time because they think, oh, I'm just going to correct this behavior over here. And then I'm going to correct that over there. And they're not really making the connection that it has this global impact on the dog who's just now in avoidance and isn't able to express what they, what they need. Um, I think that's very, very damaging. <laughs> I also think the, the unknown and the anticipation is, is just as damaging as the actual punishment, yes. you know, not knowing when and why that's going to happen to you because the humans always assume, oh, they know why. They know why that that why they were punished for it, but the reality is, is they often don't because our our timing and our consistency is is typically very poor. Yeah, and I think that dogs are learning all the time, but they're not always learning what we think they should be learning. Um, so what we think we might be teaching as a result of um, corrections or punishment might not be at all what the dog is actually learning. Um, and you know, we see that in how those, then we see fallout from, from that behaviorally. Yeah. I, a good example of that would probably be, um, dog reacting on leash, uh, excited it's, it's, it's excited and it's reacting on leash and they get a, a zap or a leash correction. Um, and while we're trying to teach them that that's unacceptable behavior, we're actually making mm -hmm. an association. And it just goes on and on, right? So yeah. our intention is is typically not um, going to result in what we want, <laughs> at least long-term. Yeah. So yeah, it's a slippery slope for sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hear often and my clients feel guilty when they say, oh, you know, I think I spoil her too much. Um, <laughs> and oftentimes that that term spoil is actually just giving the dog choices. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I always say, you know, it's, you're, you know, you're not spoiling the dog. Um, and you know, you are, you're, you're likely giving them access to things uh, that they really want and don't feel bad about it. Yeah. The spoiling thing is interesting because I definitely see that as a bit of a hang up for us um, where, you know, again, I think it's a construct and I, I really just look at, you know, their behaviors that I want and their behaviors that I don't want and their behaviors that I reinforce because I want them. And then there are other behaviors that I may not want, then, you know, I will work to modify them. Um, but I don't necessarily think spoiling is a thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, um, and I think that also goes to the piece around how in some dog training circles, um, there's lots of these constructs that are used to explain behavior. Um, so, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, you know, you let your dog on the bed with you, or if you give them unearned affection, which is just like the wildest term ever, um, if you, you know, whatever, don't make them earn every morsel of food then you will see these unwanted behaviors. And there's really no connection between the two, but it kind of leads to just keeping, controlling every aspect of the dog's life. And, I, and, and because it's so kind of simple and people can follow those instructions, 
it makes, again, us feel more in control, but doesn't really have any basis in, in you know, the science of behavior. Um, so I just, I don't really think spoiling is a thing, you know? Um, yeah. It's just yeah. not to me. <laughs> no, I totally get it. I, I think, and, you know, just to be clear to anybody who's listening, I don't think that either Jenny or I, and I, well, I'll let you speak for yourself, but I don't, I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach um, behaviors that we would like to see more of um, and reinforce those. That's not what we're saying here. Um, you know, if you would like your dog to sit and wait at the door because you don't want them to dash out and, you know, get hit by a car or whatever the case might be, pull you down the stairs, there's nothing wrong with teaching behaviors to prevent that. You know, um, I think it's important for people to decide, you know, what's what's important for them and their dog and, you know, but make it beneficial for them to do so and not contingent on, you know, accessing things in their life or earning everything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, not it being sort of these arbitrary rules. Um, right. Yeah. Do you have anything like for Larkin, do you have anything that you, I think you talked, well, you talked a little bit about, you know, um, food and, and um, sharing your human food with him, which is, is totally great. But do you have anything that you've taught him that you think is important um, that benefits both of you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we hike a lot. um, And that's kind of a really big piece for his behavioral wellness and health, because, um, he's not really a, a city dog. Um, and so being in nature and being able to run off leash are really important things for him. And so we have pretty, um, like, you know, I don't want to say strict, but you know, we have guidelines around how we hike together. And I've taught him that, you know, the appearance of people in the distance and the appearance of dogs in the distance means checking in with me. And mm-hmm. then we can go from there and decide if we are, you know, if he gets leashed up or if he gets to greet a dog, if it's an off leash dog or what happens next. Um, we, so he does that pretty automatically. Um, and anytime he sees someone in the distance, he immediately turns to me. Um, his recall is pretty good, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, so he comes when called. Um, and those are the things that are really central to our life together um, for both of us, for him to be ha- happy and healthy. And then for, for us to have safe walks, for everyone else to be safe mm-hmm. on those walks. So those are the things that we implement all the time and we practice all the time and they're very, very important for us. Um, so. Mm-hmm. so it sounds like it to me at least i i i I try and i try and not push people or i say encourage people to look at their dog as an individual and look at your life how you're living with them and what are things that you um you do together often and how do you want that to look like how do you want to interact with each other and and how is how is it going to be safe for both of you and teach behaviors around that so not so much this like we're talking about this arbitrary like mm-hmm. okay well sit before everything um <laughs> i i and i don't know if i'm rambling now but i i've commonly just seen a lack of sort of engagement with people with their with their dogs just in mm-hmm. general and I think even just in increasing engagement and reinforcement goes a long way um 
So oh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. What you, what you, with your clients, how do you, what do you encourage them to do with their dogs in terms of behavior change? Um, but I, I totally agree. I, I don't think that there are these very kind of set in stone absolutes that like every dog has to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think training is about communication, right? And what you just said about reinforcement, reinforcement is information, right? And for, you know, and reinforcement is how we give our dogs information about what works. Um, we can't speak to them in English. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we show them um, by reinforcing behaviors and by being generous with reinforcement and being consistent with reinforcement, you know, these are the things I want you to do. These are the things that work for me. Um, and it's, it's, it's powerful. It's information, it's clarity. Um, and people get to decide what works for them. You know, it's funny when we first started training with Larkin and we had a couple of trainers who told us that he couldn't sniff on walks and he had to heal and he was a puppy and we tried that. <laughs> and then I remember finally getting to a place we worked with like a third trainer who's a positive reinforcement trainer and who, you know, said, Hey, like, how about we try this? And I remember that my partner at the time, I mean, he's still my partner, but at the time he said, <laughs> I'm so happy. Like that really sucked. <laughs> like yeah. I didn't want to have to do that, that, you know, he felt so relieved that he didn't have to make him heal. Um, and then he could just let him have whatever walk he wanted and let him sniff around and explore as a puppy. So I actually think that, you know, forcing these arbitrary rules onto people isn't always a good thing. And I think most people don't really want that. I think they want to enjoy their life with their dog. They want that life to be safe. They want that to work well for them. Um, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily want that sort of obedience-based mindset and they're happy to let their dogs, you know, sniff and they're happy to let their dogs cuddle on the couch with them. And they're happy to give their dog a piece of, you know, whatever pizza crust. (laughs) So for me, I think that's really important because it's just saying, you know, we want you to have a happy life and a joyful life and the one that works for you. And here's how we can make that happen. And here's how you can give your dog information about what works. Yeah. Um, and here's how you can shape that behavior. So, yeah. 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 I think it really is the onus is on us as teachers to be normalizing normal behavior mm-hmm. for, for dogs. And um, yeah, I think unfortunately we spend half of our time sort of uh, trying to provide correct information and, and dispel incorrect information um, and then we get to training um, with people, which is too bad, but it it just comes with the territory of, you know, an unregulated and chaotic industry. Yeah. yeah. And the downside too, I think it's not just hurtful for dogs. It's definitely, it's hurtful for people too. It's damaging to people too, because some of those approaches really um, shame people for yeah. the way they interact with their dogs. You know, I've had lots of clients say, um, I mean, I've actually had people say up front to me, like, Hey, listen, I want my dog on the couch. And if this training involves not letting them do that, I, I I'm not going to be okay with it. <laughs> you know, like that was their first thing they said, um, because th- those are the messages that they've received, which in, in turn makes people feel bad, right? Mm-hmm. It makes people feel bad that the, how they want to live with their dogs is not right. Um, which is, you know, not to say that sometimes we don't inadvertently cause or contribute to behavior issues. Um, <laughs> but that's why we have 
like we hired trainers, right? Because um, we're not supposed to know all those things or people aren't supposed to know all those things um, intuitively. But for the most part, it's, you know, we don't want to shame people into just wanting to live happy lives with their dogs and enjoy their dogs in a way that works for them. Yeah, no, it's definitely not a, not the approach that we want no. to take. No. Yeah. I always really love it when I get it. I, I don't get these emails very often, but once in a while it will be, if, if, if it means that we have to crate train our dog as, as part of our training, then it's not a match for us. And then I just, I just am so happy. I'm like, yep, you're <laughs> absolutely sounds like you're my kind of people. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> but I do see things are, things are slowly getting better, but it is going to take trainers, um, really having a full understanding of these concepts and, um, and just, you know, doing better at, um, like I said, normalizing normal dog behavior and really addressing the core wellness of the animal emotionally, you know? Yes. And I think that kind of going back to the piece around reframing, you know, what training is and how we look at training. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously people call us because they want help. Right. Mm -hmm. But we're also working with living beings. And so to say that our focus is, you know, cause there's so much on like results, right. And getting results and getting behavioral results. And of course we want to have effective behavior change that works for everybody. Um, but it's not like, you know, fixing a toaster <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and we can't really think of it in those terms because it just isn't that, you know, you, you're working with living beings and behavior of living beings is a complicated thing. Like every day I'm amazed at how little I know, <laughs> <laughs> if I may admit that, like how much more I have to learn because it's such a vast field and it's so complicated. Um, and so it always is really frustrating to see it get, you know, boiled down to these overly sim simplistic constructs and folks seem so confident <laughs> about, um, that this is how it works, but it is really complicated and it requires a lot of nuance and compassion and knowledge. And yeah. I think dogs and animals deserve that. I mean, that's how I would want my behavior changed, frankly. Absolutely. And I could not put it uh, any better than how you just put it. <laughs> so, so with that, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think it's been really interesting to chat about, um, to chat about this. I've been wanting to have you on the pod podcast for ages. Not only do I respect you professionally, but I happen to really like you as a human. So thank you so much. For thank joining you us. so much. Likewise, I'm just <laughs> feel very lucky to be here. Thank you. It's been lovely. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. You too. Thank okay. you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of the Bravo Dog Knowledge Podcast. Jenny was a fantastic guest. And if you'd like to learn more about her, you can find her on Instagram at dogminded. You can also find her on the interwebs at www.dogmindedboston.com. And as always, you can find us at 
Bravo Dog Training on Instagram or www.bravodog.ca. Also, don't forget about thementorshipcollective.com. We have a great six-week course that we've just launched. It's starting December 1st. Join us if you'd like. Get on the wait list for the new year if you are interested and have not made the deadline. See you next time.